The following podcast will contain spoilers along with unfettered feelings of nostalgia. Proceed at your own risk. folks paint the house and shave your mouse it's time for event or else the podcast where i go through most every major marvel and dc event one issue at a time one episode at a time because if i don't the earth is gonna come right off of its axis and spin into the sun is that what you want well okay then maybe next time you might want to think twice before questioning my motives i'm your host my name is steven And I'm here to guide you through that most epic of line-wide crossover events, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Don't worry, I've stretched beforehand. And speaking of stretching, today we're looking at issue number 10. This issue sports a cover date of January 1986, but it hit the shelves on October 3rd, 1985. It sold for just 75 cents, and the title to this issue is Death At the Dawn of Time. It was written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by George Perez, inked by Jerry Ordway. The letters were John Costanza, and the colorist was Anthony Tallon. All right, before I get into the synopsis here, I want to point out a second story in this issue called The Monitor Tapes. This isn't a backup story that you might find after the main story in the back of the book. No, The monitor tapes are told in single panels, which are located down there at the bottom of each page of the main story. And our instinct as we're reading through this book might be to try and read it along with the rest of the story when we get down there to the bottom of that page. It is, however, easier to read the main story and then come back and read the monitor tapes. Because of that, I'll be doing that bit of the story a little bit later. I also want to mention, to reduce the time that it takes to put one of these episodes together and then possibly delay the show even further, rather than writing up a synopsis myself, I will, from this point forward, use the synopsis from DCFandom.com as a template, which just basically means that I'm going to take that synopsis Some bits of it I'll just leave alone, and other bits I will rewrite, and I may add to it as well. So this is the synopsis from DCFandom.com as rewritten and or edited by me. All right? Okay. Here's what happened in Crisis on Infinite Earths, issue number 10. After destroying Brainiac in the previous issue, Simon turns his attention toward Lex Luthor. His plan at this point is to take control of the United Villains, but first, Luther has to die. But suddenly, before Simon can follow through and deliver the killing blow, an energy beam from off-panel blasts the top of his head clean off. Turns out Brainiac wasn't dead. It seems that Brainiac is a part of his ship. So he was aware of Simon's presence the moment Simon boarded the ship. And so as Brainiac was monitoring Simon, he transferred his consciousness into the ship, leaving his body an empty shell, which is all that Simon had destroyed. Then Brainiac just created himself a new body, like real quick. Then he crept on in behind Simon and did away with the top half of the man's head, which 
be fair here, folks. It was the ugliest, most silly part of that man's head. With Simon now out of the way, Lex and Brainiac get back to their work. On Earth-1, at the dawn of mankind, Anthro, out hunting boar, sees wild streaks of lightning flashing across the sky. He ponders whether he should tell the rest of the tribe, but fears that they may, you know, find him all kinds of crazy. On Earth-4, Chemo stands next to the ruins of the Statue of Liberty. All about him, the waters surrounding Manhattan Island are ablaze with chemical flames. But then, Negative Woman from the Doom Patrol is there, flying about him and ensnaring the giant with bands of shadow energy. The bands constrict until Chemo's artificial shell pops open and he explodes. Meanwhile, in the waters below, Aqualad races to Atlantis with a dying Aqua Girl in his arms. Above, in Earth 4's equivalent to New York City, Black Adam fights alone against Robot Man and Dove. And he's winning! But then, Cole of the New Teen Titans flies up behind him and turns his body into solid crystal. Robot Man raises a fist, ready to shatter Black Adam, but Dove stops him, saying that it's wrong to hurt someone else, regardless what they may have done to you. Meanwhile, Cyborg and Celsius tackle Quakemaster, and to be honest, had it not been for this synopsis from DCFandom.com, I would have had no idea that that dude was Quakemaster. Elsewhere in the frozen wastelands of Earth-S, Dr. Savannah, Dr. Cyber, Perdegaton, Hoongan, gosh, I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, Phobia, Despero, Deathbolt, Hector Hammond, and Professor T.O. Morrow keep watch over the captured members of the Marvel family. While Savannah is in the midst of gloating, the Martian Manhunter phases through the ice and attacks them, blasting Deathbolt with energy beams from his eyes. The Atom and Platinum of the Metal Men arrive to give him some backup. Phobia tries to use her powers on Platinum, but they fail because he's a robot, enabling the Atom enough time to cut the gag off from around Billy Batson's mouth, which then allows Billy to shout the magic word Shazam, transforming him into Captain Marvel. On Earth-X, Batman dukes it out with the Calendar Man while the Outsiders and Infinity Inc. take on the Dummy. Hawkman and Tin fight Lightning Lord. Firestorm and Vixen take on Captain Cold and Icicle. And Mento tries to take out the Shaggy Man with a mental blast. But he fails, stating that the Shaggy Man isn't even alive, which gives Speedy, Green Arrow's sidekick, all the encouragement he needs to blow the Shaggy Man up with an explosive arrow. Aboard Brainiac's ship, he and Luther monitor the battle that rages across the multiple Earths. And when Lex points out that the heroes seem to be winning, Brainiac states that while the heroes are adept at fighting as part of a team, their villains are distrustful of each other and uncooperative. Suddenly, the Spectre makes his presence known across the five partially merged Earths, shouting that the ceaseless battle must stop. He warns them that the Anti-Monitor is still alive and that he has retreated into the past, all the way back to the dawn of time, and that he's working to change the course of history to eliminate 
all positive matter, ending all life, and that only the combined might of both the heroes and villains may be able to stop him. The Spectre continues that half of them will need to travel back to the beginning of time, while the other half needs to go to ancient Oa to stop Krona from peering back at the dawn of time. Lex wants to use this as leverage and tell the Spectre that the villains will help, but only if they get a couple of Earths for themselves. But Brainiac won't allow it. Without their help, all of existence will be wiped out, including him, which Brainiac will not allow. And so the villains agree to help. The heroes migrate to Earth-1 to coordinate their efforts. They form their teams and develop a strategy using the time-traveling capabilities of the Time Masters, the Legion of Superheroes, and the Lord of Time. The Jay Garrick Flash and Kid Flash are outfitted with converter technology to help bridge the gap. With the aid of Magnolad, Cosmic Boy, and Gold, the team creates a large magnetic conductor, which shunts the assemblage backwards in time. In the meantime, in Atlantis, Aqualad has given Aquagirl over to their doctors or healers or whatever you call them and waits nervously for word of her condition. Soon Mira comes to see him, letting him know that Aquagirl has died. Meanwhile, Lex Luthor and his allies travel 10 billion years into the past to the planet Oa. They arrive on the fateful day when the scientist Krona is destined to witness the hand of creation and inadvertently create the multiverse. Many of the villains are taken out by the Owens before they can even reach their prize, but three of them, Icicle, Mirror Master, and Maldor, make it through and burst into Krona's laboratory. All they need to do is destroy Krona's viewing screen, but the three argue among themselves about which of the three can do it best. And as they quibble, Krona arrives and just kills all three of them. At the dawn of time, the heroes face off against the Anti-Monitor. They fire all of their energy blasts and heat blasts and any kind of weapons at him and punch him in the face and just basically transfer all of their energy into him, which only serves to make the Anti-Monitor more powerful. He requires their energy so that when Krona opens the doorway between the positive matter universe and the antimatter universe, the anti-monitor will then be able to obliterate the positive matter universe entirely. All it seems is lost, but then the specter appears before the anti-monitor, channeling all of the mystical energy of Earth's most powerful sorcerers. He attacks the Anti-Monitor directly, and their fight unleashes an explosion of energy, which appears to consume all reality, ending the issue. And so, with everybody dead, I guess it's time for the top three things to dwell on. The top three things to dwell on are three moments or aspects of the book that I feel need to be given just a bit more thought. Funny, stupid, heartwarming or sad, it doesn't really matter because I'm going to talk about them anyway. Thing to dwell on number three, did I just see Skeletor from the Masters of the Universe in this comic? So as I am flipping through this comic and giving it a read, 
It's only after I'm just kind of doing a review. I've already read it. Of course, I read it twice before in in years past, but I'm just kind of looking through it at this point, getting the show notes together. And I see there on page five, panel number six, I believe in the upper right-hand corner, there is a character standing there and he's not drawn very large. It's a, it's a very, the, the camera is pulled way back, but I swear to God, that is fricking Skeletor. He's in blue. He's got a blue hood. And again, you can't make out his face very well, but it looks very skull-like and it is a shade of yellow. So of course I went to the person that I trust in most to provide me with correct information about what's going on in the crisis on infinite earths. And that would be Peter Rios of the Daily Rios. And he tells me that this is a character by the name of Dr. Destiny. So I looked him up a bit. His first appearance comes in Justice League of America number five, all the way back in April of 1961 by Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. He was your basic mad scientist type. He invented things and then he used those things that he invented to pull off crimes. He just kind of was a very small thorn in the Justice League's foot, the way I understand it. But he looked like a regular dude. Again, I didn't do a lot of research, but based on what I could find, he just looked like a regular dude back then. And in fact, in his first appearance, he disguised himself as Hal Jordan. But eventually, he becomes very gaunt, and he looks like a freaking skeleton in the face. And that's because he lost the ability to dream. And that happened in, well, at least he debuted that new look in Justice League of America number 154 back in February of 1978, which is a couple of years before Skeletor ever made an appearance. So. I guess the masters of the universe ripped off DC here. Not Skeletor, Dr. Destiny. Thing to dwell on number two, what is even the point of Batman being in this issue? So, of course, per the synopsis, we do have a moment in this issue where Batman is fighting Calendar Man, who, whew, that guy just sounds scary. But it's on page eight, very first panel. And we see Batman punching Calendar Man square in the jaw. However, later in this issue, when all of the heroes go back to the dawn of time and attack the Anti-Monitor, well, they start first by having any of the the, the heroes that can fire some kind of blast from their their costume or their, their powers, whatever they can do. You got like Black Lightning and Firestorm. And characters like that firing these blasts at the Anti-Monitor. At the same time, you've got Superman and Captain Marvel and Power Girl and Wonder Woman and characters like that hitting the Anti-Monitor on the side of his head. Now, the Anti-Monitor is very giant-like at this point. So the heroes are about the size of a G.I. Joe or Star Wars action figure compared to the anti-monitor. So this panel, and I'm not sure what page it's on because suddenly this page is not giving me a number. It's page 20. There it is. Page 20. The the heroes just look ridiculous all punching 
the anti-monitor in the side of the head. But following that, we get a panel of Batman, Robin. It looks like the, the Brainiac from Legion of Superheroes is there. There's a couple other characters I don't recognize. And Robin is asking Batman, Batman, we haven't got any powers. What can we do? And Batman says, we can share our courage. We can give them hope. And it's like, why did you even bring this guy along? He's literally doing nothing. There's nothing he can do but share his courage. All right, Batman. Good job, buddy. Good job. Thing to dwell on number one, heroes and villains working together. I really enjoyed this part of the book. The the moment where the heroes and the villains come together and you've got basically everybody who can do something with time, who, you know, everybody who's a time traveler working together. You've got everybody that can wield some kind of electrical power working together. You have all of the characters who can have some kind of control over magnetism working together. I just, I found this really, I don't know. I don't know most of these characters. This is not, I've said it before many, many times. This is a book that is during a time period of DC Comics that I just was not reading. So I don't have a dog in this fight or that sounds really offensive towards dogs, doesn't it? I don't have a horse in this race. Wow, that's another one. Both both of those sayings are very abusive towards animals. I don't have a pony in this show. I don't I don't understand these these sayings. Anyway, I really have no feelings about these characters really in any way. Superman has always and will forever be my favorite character going back to when I was uh, I think 5 years old when I got my very first Superman t-shirt for Christmas. But all in all, as I'm reading this, even for the third time, what's happening to a lot of these characters don't really affect me all that much. I'm not feeling anything when, you know, for example, Barry Allen died. I mean, yeah, it was kind of sad. It was kind of, I don't know. I really enjoyed Barry Allen, just kind of, you know, the, 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 the fact that he would sacrifice himself, that he knew that everything would be lost unless he did something and he knew that that would cause his own death. I felt something there, but I didn't feel like, oh no, Barry Allen's dead. What are we going to do? Especially knowing that he eventually comes back a few decades later. But seeing all these heroes and villains, just like, it's like they're, they're separated into their various power set categories. And then seeing all the magic users at one point lending their power to the specter. I just really enjoyed that. It it really gave me kind of a, a thrill to, to get to that moment, to those various moments. I thought it was, I thought it was really cool. That's the kind of stuff that little kids just freaking love. I would have been, let's see, this is 1985. I would have turned 13 in the middle of this series. So yeah, Had I been a DC kid back then and had I been reading this book, I'm sure that I would be up and cheering for a lot of this issue and then freaking out by the end of it because of the way it ends. But those were the top three things to dwell on. So now we come to the part of the show where I wrap it all up and I tell you how I feel about the book in general. I want to touch on a particular moment in this book that 
really made me laugh out loud. And it was when the villains go back to ancient Oa 10 billion years ago to assault the laboratory of Krona. And they're basically running through the streets of this city, just taking out Owens wherever they can find them. And the people of Oa at this point, they're not like the guardians of the, the, the Green Lantern Corps. They are blue skinned, but they're, they're not, they're not small. Uh, they don't float or anything like that, but they do have the white hair. They do, they are blue and they do seem to have some kind of superpowers that really do make them vastly superior over any of these villains that are attacking. And in fact, they're kind of watching this assault. There's a group of them standing in this room, and it looks like they're looking out a a big open bay window of some sort, watching all this happen. And then their eyes start glowing, and then all of the villains just drop. Their, Their heads feel like they're exploding, and then they just drop to the floor, and they're done. But what made me laugh is the first panel that we meet these random citizens of Oa as the attack is going on. They're, they're, they're talking to themselves. One of them says, I do not know who these humanoids are, but they attack us. And the second one says, they must not destroy our property, which is kind of funny that these vastly superior beings in both mental power and technology are just worried about their property. That's, that's what's on their mind. But the guy who says that also says, yet I sense they somehow wish to help us. And another dude says, perhaps they do, but that is not of any immediate concern. And then the other one says, we have our property to protect. And I just, they just come off as some kind of radicalized militant homeowners association in this, these two panels that, uh, again, these are superior beings. These, these, People who live on Oa are on a higher plane than we are right now in 2022 or 2023, whenever this comes out. I don't know. They're way more intelligent. They have these massive mental powers. And again, their technology is just freaking crazy advanced. And yet we have our property to protect. That's what they're worried about. And I just I found that extremely funny. I also feel like I should, I, I really need to comment on the monitor tapes. I mean, because I said I would at the top of the episode. There's really not much to say about them. Again, it's uh, one panel at the bottom of each page. They're in black and white. It, well, it's either one panel or it could be two to three panels, kind of like a, a comic strip. But it's just Lila, the harbinger, going through the monitor's files And she is dictating. She's recording something. She's sitting at a desk talking into a microphone, kind of like what I'm doing right now. So the monitor tapes may very well be the first podcast ever recorded in history. But she's just, she's narrating and telling us, the reader, about stuff that has happened in other universes and dimensions during this crisis that we were not privy to because it wasn't included in the main story. Stuff like Gem World being destroyed, Dark Side cloaking Apocalypse so that 
They would kind of sit out the crisis and not be noticed. That kind of stuff. It's interesting, sure, but it's not. It's it's kind of like I, I would think of it. I would relate it to the appendices in Lord of the Rings or the Silmalarian or whatever you call it, which I don't believe I've ever read, but they just give you more history on the world of, you know, Middle Earth. And that's kind of what we're getting here. We're just getting another little piece of the story. It doesn't affect, as far as I know, maybe I'll find out in the next couple issues that information that we got here in this, the monitor tapes is very important, but I can't imagine that they would do that. If it's that important, it would be included in the main story. Granted, the monitor tapes are in the issue that the main story appears in, but I think this is just here to provide us with a bit more context, a bit more information to help us to feel and understand just how widespread the crisis really is and everything that it's affecting. And that's all I have to say about that. That's all I have to say about that. That's all I have to say about that. And that's all I have to say about that. This issue sees the, it's not the first appearance of Superboy Prime, but it is his first appearance within these 12 issues. When he first appears in this issue, it's very quick. He doesn't get a lot of screen time. It's as all of the heroes are gathering on Earth-1 in Death Valley. Superman of Earth-2 is saying goodbye to Lois. It's a very heartfelt goodbye. He joins the rest of the heroes, and they're all getting ready to get things started when Superboy Prime shows up. There's really not a lot of information given about him here in this book. He just says, I'm Superboy from Earth Prime. You've got to bring me too. And the heroes are confused. Earth Prime? I've never heard of Earth Prime. I thought there were only five Earths left. And he says, there are. Earth Prime has been destroyed. And Superman of Earth 1 has apparently met this Superboy before because he says, I didn't know what happened to you when you vanished. And then we get a little editor's note that said that this happened in DC Comics Presents number 87. So this would probably be one of those moments in the book that I guess while technically you don't need to read DC Comics Presents number 87 to find out who this kid is and why he's here, it doesn't take away from the story. You don't need that to understand what's going on in this issue, but it made me want to go out and find that issue and look at it. But of course I didn't. But Superboy Prime basically tells them, he says, uh, even I don't know how I disappeared, but I'm here. And I'm Earth Prime's last survivor. I have a reason to join with you guys. But if you don't let me, I'll do it by myself. So he sounds a bit obsessive, maybe. He's on a revenge trip. Maybe he's got some anger issues. Something to think about. But again, I am freaking loving this event. I don't know that I'm having as much fun with this as I did with Marvel Superhero Secret Wars. and. I've said it before, but I, I don't really like trying to compare the two. You can't help but compare them because, in essence, Marvel Superhero Secret Wars was Marvel's first big crossover event, and Crisis on Infinite Earths is DC's first big crisis event. Marvel Superhero Secret Wars lasted 12 issues and was published from January to December of 1984. Crisis on Infinite Earths 12 issues published from January 85 to December 85. So there's, you know, a lot of 
on the surface similarities and it's hard not to compare the two, but you, you break them down and you start reading the books. There's, there's really nothing to compare. They're completely different types of stories. Marvel superheroes, secret wars, a crossover event initially created to sell some toys is basically your big budget action summer popcorn movie. And while Crisis on Infinite Earths is also uh, would be considered a big budget movie, it's more of an epic. Well, let me put it this way. You could probably get away with taking Marvel superhero Secret Wars and making a two to two and a half hour movie and have it be fine and cover everything it needs to cover and people would enjoy it. You couldn't do that with Crisis on Infinite Earths. There's just too much going on. This would have to be a miniseries on TV, like HBO Max. That's the only way you could do Crisis on Infinite Earths justice. It's a deep, epic, massive story with, I believe, every single character from the DC universe has shown up at one point in this event or will by the time it's over. Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure that that's the case, but I feel like I've heard that somewhere. And the fact that every once in a while you get a character that you haven't seen before in any of these issues suddenly have a speaking part and it's usually one or two lines and then you don't see him again makes me feel like Marv Wolfman and George Perez are trying their best to get every single character from the DC universe into this book. And whether or not they succeeded, I don't know. I am planning on doing uh, a bonus episode once I'm done with issue number 12 and bringing somebody on board for that. And I have a lot of questions for this person and uh, that's going to be one of them. But that's it. That's all I got, folks. I want you to join me back here next week as I'm going to be talking about the penultimate chapter with Crisis on Infinite Earths, issue number 11, Aftershock. Just two freaking issues left to go and then we're done. I, I can't believe it. I just, the, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Event or Else is a presentation of the Just Another Fanboy podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to eventorelse at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to get you and your fellow patrons episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this podcast with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. There's a snort. Oh, <laughs> uh, that may go at the end of the sentence. It better.